Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. Yeah, and of course, this was not much of anything until all of a sudden, Pedro Borbone comes out of left field and blind blindside buzz cap right hits him right in the head, and then it started again. And so, yeah, it was, it fired him out. George Theodore was known for his eccentric personality, but when you hear him now, he's polite, calm, and, well, he's really, really polite. Maybe it's that Utah charm, because the guy known as the Stork an outfielder for the Mets of the 1970s, isn't quite a character anymore. He's a guy, though, who owns a very unique plot of land in Mets history. A total of just 105 games played, and yet remembered by everyone of that era. He played in 73 and 74, and was a regular with the writers for his colorful quotes and aw shucks persona. Involved in a vicious collision, though, in center field with a teammate leading to a season-ending hip injury in 73, yet was still part of that magical run of the World Series in the postseason in that same year. And then out of the league a few years later, leading to a long-term battle with Major League Baseball for his post-career compensation. Disco, Shea, Bell Bottoms, and the Stork. This is George Theodore's New York accent. George, how are you? Uh, just fine, and thanks for having me. And I'd like to thank all the New York fans for still remembering me. You know, one of the fans, I was reading a, a thread of fans of yours, and they said the back of your baseball card says he loves marshmallow milkshakes. I want to know if that's correct, factually incorrect, and if it's correct, where do you get a marshmallow milkshake? Uh, that is correct at one point. Now they're too rich for me. Okay. Uh, yeah, you can get it uh, just about any place from Arctic Circle to Dairy Queen uh, so all of that, anyway, that was uh, part of the things that were, when I initially signed the contract, they gave us a questionnaire. And I thought, oh, this is fine. I'll, I'll just write all these different things. And, uh, I didn't realize they're going to follow me throughout my whole <laughs> You grew up in Utah, and at that time, when you were growing up in the 1950s, there was nearly no baseball players, major leaguers that had ever come out of Utah. When you were being scouted, was it unique and rare for major league baseball scouts to make it out to Utah? 
very rare. And uh, we did have like Herman Franks is from Utah, uh, Fred Sanford, and they they were uh, prominent major leaguers at one point. Uh, but uh, not many people uh, get signed out of Utah. So in 1969, when the Mets drafted me, Tom Kilcor, our third baseman at the University of Utah, and a pitcher, Vaughnopolis from uh, West High School, that was very unusual. So Roy Partee was the scout, and uh, I guess he'd followed us a little bit, but uh, I don't know uh, why, but very rarely did people from Utah sign. I love the story about when you were drafted you didn't know you were drafted. This was back in the day where it wasn't like you had a text on your phone or or somebody, a GM calls you up or you could read it on, on the internet or watch it on TV. You had no idea. A month went past the draft and you still had no idea you were drafted. How surprising was it when you finally got that, that phone call? Well, I didn't think it was real. And so uh, finally, and I had heard that I was drafted uh, and I'm saying, well, what's next and a bird dog scout from northern utah called me and said are you interested in signing and i said well sure i am i'm ready ready to go he says well what will it take to sign you and i said oh well i hadn't thought about that uh, uh how about three thousand dollars that'll pay for uh, my year in graduate school uh if i don't make it and so he said okay and uh that was that story. Quite a different world. Hard to imagine a player getting drafted today and not knowing until 30 days later that it actually happened. So you come from Utah and you're drafted into the Mets organization. Was it at all intimidating thinking about going to New York to begin your career, which is such a totally different world than where you grew up and knew? Well, you know, the Mets were doormats at that time. And it, that was the year of the amazing Mets that became, you know, world champions. And so uh, uh, I really didn't see things in perspective like that. I just said, uh, boy, this is a chance to play professional baseball, to do some traveling, to go around. I'm just excited uh, at the opportunity. Story after story, anecdote after anecdote of fans note, how kind you were to them if they asked for an autograph or if they saw you in the street and wanted to say hello or they were kids flagging down your car as you left Shea Stadium. Why was it that you had so much patience for everybody and everybody had such a good experience meeting you? For me, it was kind of natural. I enjoyed the limelight. I enjoyed meeting with people, find an autograph or so uh I like to sign autographs, and it was actually a release. You know, the pressure of playing baseball and competing is so intense that just that human interaction and the autograph signing and pictures, uh, I think to me it was actually a release too. That's so interesting. Now, you were known as the Stork. You stood 6'3", and at that time, I mean, that's incredibly tall for a Major League Baseball player. People still say it to this day to you. Do you embrace the nickname? Do you like the nickname? Well, first of all, 6'5", when I started. Oh, 6'5", okay. I shortchanged it two inches. 
you know, I, I, I got the nickname from Jim Gosker when we were teammates in Tidewater. I, I say the story, he saw me holding a baby and he says, ah, there's the stork. Now, that's not true. But uh, <laughs> for some reason, some people were calling me the crane or the big bird or so, and, and he stuck me with the stork. And it was endearing, and people related to it. And so, yeah, affectionately, I, I enjoyed it. And uh, to this day, you know, that's me. You know, you, your, your personality is eccentric, and you always had these great quotes, these colorful quotes to the media. And some have thought that you were the inspiration for Kramer, the infamously eccentric character from Seinfeld. Any truth to that? <laughs> no, but I really do. You do. When you watch when you watch Seinfeld, you see some of yourself in Kramer? Well, sort of. <laughs> Let's just put it. What what parts can you relate to when it comes to Kramer? Well, I don't know. He's just uh, exuberant, spontaneous. So things like I think at the time when you were playing for the Mets, 73, 74, it might have been a different era where an athlete's quotes aren't taken so seriously as maybe they are today. Or maybe go in the opposite direction where today, because of social media, so many athletes say so much more that more is accepted. But when you had an outside-of-the-box personality back in the 70s, did you find resistance to it, or did you find that people had a lot of fun with it? I found a lot of fun. found certain sports writers and media who who had fun and saw baseball as a game, not really a profession that you had to be so intense, such as Maury Allen at the Post. He always was great. And Dick Schaap, too, was great. So uh, they kind of had fun, and I had fun with them. Uh, you know, it was a lot different era. Sports writers, I know there was one sports writer, uh, Ed Greenpool, told me, said, kind of stay away from him. He's, he's kind of a tough one, all of us. But most of them were really positive and just getting their story. You were part of the 73 Mets, which are celebrating the 50th anniversary this year, going to the World Series, ultimately losing to that dynasty of the Oakland A's that won three in a row. But when you were there, you were learning from Willie Mays. You were also learning from Yogi Berra, the manager. And I read that your only regret is that you didn't have more time with those legends of the game. What was it like to siphon off a little bit of information or be around them even for such a short amount of time well that's exactly right i here i'm around some of the giants of the game here i would have liked to pick their brains and find out how they did things and what they were thinking because uh you know i was so intent on doing my part making uh an impression so that I could stay around uh, that, you know, Rusty Stop, for instance, had a, a book on all the pitchers in there. I didn't do anything like that. I saw the ball and swung at it. Uh, Willie Mays was brilliant in the field. You know, uh, He knew the hitters. He got 
signals from second base and shortstop, so he knew the pitches, knew which way to go. Uh, you know, Yogi Berra was such a tremendous clutch hitter. You know, I'd like to know, you know, what was going through his mind. And, and Ralph Kiner, you know, uh, what a wonderful uh, story he would have been to learn how, you know, this great home run hitter, uh, how he did it and what he thought of the current players and things. So uh, that that's the kind of the regret that I had. But, you know, when you're in the middle of playing and fighting for a position and fighting to stay around, uh, yeah, you don't get to see that historical Yogi has all these yogiisms that make him seem like he's a Yoda-like figure, and yet I'm guessing there was a very pragmatic, sensible, logical part of Yogi Berra that we didn't see because we only read the crazy quotes. What was he like as just a baseball X's and O's guy? Uh, he, I didn't have much interaction with him specifically. You know, he he was a good manager for me in the sense that uh, he didn't put extra pressure on you. He put you out there uh, in your position and kind of expected you to do what you were trained to do. Uh, but uh, he had some good people around him that helped him when to change pitchers, when to, uh, you know, pinch hit and things like that. Uh, you know, for a young player like me, uh, even though he was good for not putting pressure on me, uh, he was also brought up with the Casey Stingle idea of platooning and for young players platooning is kind of tough uh, we need to play quite often to maintain our sharpness and our reflexes and so i've got to appreciate yogi more after i've left base when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. July the 7th of 73, you suffered a serious injury, so we're almost exactly at the 50-year anniversary of this, and you collide to the outfield with a teammate chasing a fly ball, and both of you are down to the ground. A hush comes over the crowd. You end up injuring your hip badly, and it takes you out for the rest of the regular season and almost the entirety of the postseason as well when – that happens and your dream is kind of dashed in the middle of what will be a great season. Are you feeling sorry for yourself? Are you bummed out? Are you depressed? Or uh, how do you emotionally you handle something like that? Well, I was happy to be out of pain because having a dislocated hip was the most intense uh, pain you could go through. And they couldn't do, get me any pain or anything for four hours until they got me to the hospital because they didn't know if they were going to operate. But, uh, so, uh, I didn't, wasn't thinking of anything like that. I know a doctor, uh, here in Salt Lake said, Oh, I see those dislocated hips all the time on the ski slopes. And I just put them in right there. And that's basically what they did. Finally for me, but, I didn't realize that 
you know, I was uh, in the hospital in traction for a month and then on crutches for a month. So I came back the uh, 1st of September and the Mets uh, graciously kept me on their roster. And I didn't realize at the time it would really had kind of restricted my movements. And so I didn't quite have the torque of a swing that I used to have. And so, uh, yeah, I'm kind of sad because it really changed my life, changed my baseball career. And fortunately, you were out of the game a couple of years later, although you were with the Mets throughout the 73 postseason run, which included the iconic dust-up between Buddy Harrelson and Pete Rose at Shea in the NLCS. Take me through that confrontation, because those are two guys that will not back down to anyone. (laughs) Well, that's true. You know, we were uh, beating Cincinnati, and I think they were a little gathered. Pete Rose is such a competitor, you know, he's going to try to do anything to fire things up. And so when he tried to break up a double play and slid it to Buddy, Buddy took offense. He's a little hot-headed as well. And so they had words. Of course, Pete grabbed him and pulled him down. And then the both benches uh, emptied and... And, of course, I was out there, too, grabbing an opposing player. That's what you're supposed to do in a fight. Grab some the other team and just wait. And usually they're not terrible fights. And, of course, this was not much of anything until all of a sudden Pedro Borbone comes out of left field and could blindside Buzz Capra, hits him right in the head, and then it started again. And so, yeah, it was, it fired him out. Pete got him going, and they ended up winning a game, the next game, I think. But our pitching held up, and, and their pitching was not as, as good as ours, and so we, we beat them in the National League. 105 games played between 73 and 74 for you. That's not a lot of games, and yet you've always talked about how the Mets have welcomed you back into the family, invited you back to New York for events and alumni events. Were you back for Old Timers Day at City last summer? Uh, last summer, no. Uh, I was invited, but I've been having some uh, eye problems, and so uh, I, I couldn't make it back last summer. I was kind of hoping there'd be a reunion this year, but apparently yeah, it was so spectacular last year uh, that that was, that was the thing. So now they've just been inviting a couple of players back at a time, and and they did what me and Benny Agbiani uh, a few years ago. So I've definitely had my share of coming back and been treated royally. And that's that's meant a lot. What does it say about the Mets organization that you could play only 105 games for them and yet they still consider you family? Well, it, it, I'm just uh, so happy and thankful from Lorraine and Tim Hamilton there in public promotions, they they always looked out for me and uh, included me when they could. And so, yeah, it's kind of a dream. You went on to work as a guidance counselor in Utah, your native state, for nearly four decades and were recently named the Educator of the Year by the South Salt Lake Chamber of Commerce. 
and you helped contribute to a book named A Bitter Cup of Coffee, how MLB and the Players Association threw 874 retirees a curveball. That's with author Douglas Gladstone. And this is about how before modern era and new collective bargaining agreements, you guys were kind of out on your own if you did not play more than three or four years of service time. And so what did you expect might be your pension and what was the reality for Major League Baseball? I had no expectations. You know, Marvin Miller was hired in the 60s to be the head of our union. And he really revolutionized things and said, uh, got things that we deserve that we hadn't before. And myself playing, I wasn't thinking about that. I, I knew that it took four years uh, of time to uh, get a pension. And I only had two. But uh, I know Marvin Miller regretted one thing in the 1980 collective bargaining. And that's that he didn't bring those players previous up into include them in the current agreement. And so, you know, the current agreement was, I think you had to have, instead of four years, 38 days to get a pension and, and one day in the majors to qualify for the medical program, something like that. And so it would have been nice to be included in the pension. There would have been a lot of money in Major League Baseball. Gosh, about oh, 35 years later, uh, recognized that, that they wanted to help all of us players with less than four years' experience. And I think at one point there was over a 1,000, and now it's down to 400 or less. And so they uh, gave us an annuity. Now, annuity, it's great. Get a few dollars every year. However, it's not like a pension that you can pass on to, uh, say, your wife or family or so. But uh, I'm happy to receive that, too, that uh, they didn't have to do that. But ethically, uh, it was the right thing to do. And so it sounds like uh, you felt, and maybe other players alongside you, that along the way there should have been done more for Major League Baseball. Have you run into frustration that baseball has not recognized you guys and what you put in more than they have? I just accepted the current the rules at the time and didn't even think twice until Doug Gladstone uh, did his research and said, hey, this isn't right. And, uh, he's the crusader who really got uh, uh, all of us uh, pre-80 players, uh, you know, into the fold at least. And so, uh, you know, it, it was something that uh, not I wasn't really aware of the politics or the collective bargaining, those kinds of things from the establishment. So uh, all of this is kind of new. The title of the book, A Bitter Cup of Coffee, it doesn't sound like there's much bitterness in your voice, no matter what we talk about, the the brevity of your career, the injury, and now the pension, but do you have any bitterness? Not really. Uh, I had so many wonderful experiences and, uh, uh, that uh, I feel blessed in many ways, but, uh, you know, I, I know there's three players 
that I know of here in Salt Lake in the same boat as myself. And I know of three other players who have since passed away. And so, you know, we, you look at some of the salaries now, and probably one of the biggest salaries, like a judge's salary, could pay for doubling our annuity for all 400 of us. So I don't know where they're getting all the money, but it's really incredible. It sure is. When you played, you seem like a pretty grounded, down-to-earth guy that never thought of yourself as a, quote, baseball player that was a celebrity. So besides Willie and besides Yogi, who were you in awe to meet or to face when you played Major League Baseball? Well, I don't know if I really uh, had anybody in awe. I'd love to watch Pittsburgh Pirates take batting practice boy, and, and the Cincinnati Reds and their big red machine. That, that was absolutely wonderful. But let me tell you one story about Bill Buckner. Uh, you know, Bill Buckner came up with almost several of those Dodgers at the same time from Russell and Lopes and Garvey and Bobby Valentine. Uh, and here I had got a single, and there was a man on second, too. So there were, I was on first, and the man on second, and Bill Buckner was the first baseman, and he's playing behind me. He was a great player. He was a great filter and a, really a wonderful hitter, too. But I'm leading off, and here's Buckner right behind me saying, Hey, better, hey, better, hey, better, hey. <laughs> I think it. This guy's as loose as can be and uh, relaxed. And, uh, and that's my, my main memory of Bill Buckner. <laughs> Was it hard to hit it, Shay, with the planes roaring overhead? I kind of turned them out. and uh, So that, that wasn't necessarily bothering me. But, you know, what was hardest was the whirling winds and knowing that. Uh, how they could do play havoc with the ball and being able to, you know, my main position was first base, but I had to learn to play uh, uh, outfield. So being out there in the outfield with those swirling winds and trying to judge what's going to happen, uh, that was a real adventure. You are tall, so you stand out. It's the 70s in New York. You're a Major League Baseball player. Did you ever hit the clubs, discotheques, a Studio 54, something like that? No, no. I was not into that scene at all. So there was a whole different world of the New York 1970s going on, and you were like, that is not my world. Well, it wasn't that it wasn't my world. It just had become a part of it yet. And uh, Dick Schaap, what uh, did a story on me, and he took me into Harlem, into a, a nightclub there. We're watching it, and uh, that was the closest I came to a nightclub or so. How does the experience of the stork going to a nightclub in Harlem in the seventies go down? Is that a? Is there any funny stories out of that night? Well, I I, I don't know. I just felt natural, and kind of fun. Enjoyed the show and. Enjoyed the people around, and of course, Dick Schaap was always fun to be be with. 
he was a good host, huh? He was a good host, not only on TV or in front of the camera, but also in genuine, just everyday life. Uh, tremendous. And I was so sad when the found out he had passed away, I guess from an infection after getting hip surgery or something. Yeah, he was, he was a legend. Well, George Theodore stands out for being such a memorable member of the New York Mets of the 1970s, a member of the 1973 National League pennant-winning Mets squad. And as I mentioned before, it's an interesting read, the book about the number of baseball retirees that are right now getting thrown a curve by Major League Baseball. It's called A Bitter Cup of Coffee, how MLB and the Players Association threw 874 Retirees, a curveball by Douglas Gladstone, the author. George Theodore, our guest here on the show. George, this is so much fun. Thanks so much for joining us. The Stork, what a unique character. What a unique story. And what a unique place in history that you could play only 105 games for either the Mets or the Yankees and live in lore forever. There's only a handful of those guys who didn't have some huge clutch hit in October, the World Series or something. That made everybody remember him. This is a guy that basically played great in the regular season for one year, but because of his colorful quotes and eccentric personality, he was beloved. And I was thinking to myself, he's really a product of that era, the 1970s, before celebrity in sports really blew up to where it is today. Because guys of that era that were eccentric seemed to be very organic about it. Take him, George Theodore, or Doc Ellis, who threw a no-hitter on LSD, or Mark the Bird Fidrich, who would talk to the baseball and was the, the spirit of 76. That summer was all about Fidrich. These are guys that became part of the, the culture at, at large because people saw that they, I think, were authentic in their, quote, weirdness or their eccentric personalities or their outside-the-box character. And then you start getting into the 80s and 90s and today, and it's much different. It feels much more artificial. Like there is Mark Gastineau, and we had Joe Klecko on New York accent earlier in the year, and he really clashed with, with Mark Gastineau. And Gastineau always seemed like a guy who was in it for himself. It wasn't because he was just naturally eccentric that he did the sack dance. It was because he wanted the attention on him. He wanted the celebrity. He wanted the notoriety. And then it evolves to today where you have guys like Antonio Brown or Ocho Cinco who clearly are, quote, eccentrics, but so much so that it feels created for the media created for social media, created for attention so that they can leverage that, I suppose, into endorsements or social media followers or new salary or whatever that is, that it it definitely feels created instead of natural. And so there's been an evolution of the eccentric athlete. I, I still think there are those out there, but they're harder to come by from an authenticity standpoint because now – I think you wonder what is a creation and what is who you really are. And maybe that's actually just part of social media in general. When we see somebody on Facebook or see somebody on Instagram, we wonder, is that who you really are or is that just for the camera, for the filter, for the gram, as they say? And it's definitely filtered into professional sports.
All right, that'll do it for this episode of New York Accent. Every previous episode of New York Accent is available on this very same podcast feed. You can scroll back and watch them or listen to them all. You can watch them on YouTube. The WFAN YouTube channel is where these all reside as well. So if you want to check out how these guys look and watch them on camera, watch them there as well. We always have the camera set up so they're on video as well. Thanks to executive producer Bryce Gelman. This is once again New York Accent. I'm DA Damon Amendolari. You can listen to me mornings, weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things. You can listen to that on Sirius XM Channel 158, or you can listen to that in podcast form as well as inside the free Odyssey app. Have a great rest of your week, everybody. We will see you next Tuesday. And New York Accent is an original Odyssey podcast.